Welcome everyone to another Wednesday evening with Clear Mountain. Uh, today we are blessed to be joined by Aya Ehingsa, who is one of our closest Bhikkhuni sisters. Um, she was just visiting down here uh, two weekends ago um, for seminary Junha's Pabaja going forth ceremony. And um, we've sort of intersected over these last few years here and there. And just recently, Aya has moved from the um, former Aloka Vihara to Canmore Theravada Buddhist community where she's now residing. And that puts her about 10 hours from us, but it still feels in the vicinity. And we're so grateful to have her nearby and just to develop this friendship more and more. And so she kind of decided to, to join us today. And we're just so grateful. And thank you, Aya, for your friendship and your time. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Ajahn. And uh, this is, I believe, to also introduce Bikuni Bear behind you. Oh, yeah. Bear Cooney. Bear Cooney, of course. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> sort of chipmunks. Who, who sewed her a robe? Um, Anna Garrick Sarah. Okay. Yeah. And we had a children's program, and uh, Bear Cooney gave the precepts. <laughs> That's great. So the Not children to take them. <laughs> well, thank you, I and Bear Cooney's free to answer questions as well for those who want to type them into the chat. Um, and uh, so I would you mind introducing yourself a bit and your um, just how you came into robes and uh, just give us a sort of a, a brief history of you, um, if you would. Sure. Sure. Oops. It's all right. She's looking dignified enough. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so I came to practicing meditation uh, later in life. Um, when I was younger, I, I was a very serious classical musician, and I went to university uh, on a music scholarship to a school in the United States and ended up being recruited into a, a very, very fundamentalist, harsh uh, church and and it kind of it it derailed my life and so uh, in my mid-30s I I got out of being involved with that group and was pretty a religious for a long time and very nervous about about religion about dogma and then in my mid-40s I I uh, was on a soccer team and there was a woman on the soccer team and she was lovely and we were out one night after a game and she said something about this three-month silent retreat and I, I just was like, what? And asked her a bunch of questions about it. Just kind of blew my mind. And she was quite a serious practitioner. She had done retreats in Burma with Upandita and uh, so she told me about this meditation retreat at the University of British Columbia at the Asian Center. They had these weekend non-residential retreats. So off I went. And thankfully, I had no idea it was Buddhist. I just thought I was going to learn meditation. And I still didn't at the end of the retreat know it was Buddhist. I just, but I was hooked. I, it was, yeah. And that yeah, the first full day, I was like, oh my gosh, this is what I've been looking for my entire life. 
the idea that you can go in and find find truth find beauty find safety that was just that was completely radical radical to me fundamentalism invariably leads you out and and makes you dependent on a, a source of truth and beauty that's outside yeah it's absolutely the opposite like going completely the opposite direction so, I mean, that's a, yeah. sorry yeah i was hooked yeah that's a fascinating articulation of the difference in trajectory um what why do you feel fundamentalism leads you out uh because fundamentalism um you know we don't hear it talked about as much as i think that the third fetter that's cut when we experience stream entry is a wrong grasp of rites and rituals that is fundamentalism and uh there's a very strong force in the human mind uh that is um that makes us susceptible and, and we see it in our culture in all kinds of different ways. There's a sutta in the Anguttara Sixes about penetrative, penetrative wisdom, and 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 there's these things. It's a it's a deep sutta. It's a long sutta, and the Buddha is saying that there are all these different things that we need to penetrate and really come to understand. And one of them is suffering. And in that in that description, he says that the uninstructed, you know, the ignorant response to suffering, one is that we're just overwhelmed and perplexed, and we certainly see that. And the second is that one goes on a search, a search outside of themselves, and they're looking for someone. And the, the sutta actually says that you, you go and ask people, you know, do like do something, so give me a mantra, like fix it. So this whole idea of, getting rescued, really. And, and so fundamentalism has that in it, this idea of that this is the right way. When you, when you do it this way, it's, it's the right way. And, and, and by implication, inference, everything else is wrong. And then there, there's this false sense of simplicity and this false sense of security. Uh, I'm struck, Aya, by, on the surface, your life seems very simple, very secure, very ritualistic, and very fundamentalist. So what it's not was- fundamentalist at all. So, so what was the trajectory inwards? How did that transform into a manifestation that on the surface looks similar um, to a religious institution that might be very fundamentalist? What was that shift and how is it different? The, the difference, you know, I, I mean, I, you can meet Buddhists that are, have a fundamentalist leaning and, and I tend to call them righteous, you know. Um, but for the most part, I think the whole essence of the Buddhist teaching with Ehi Pasiko, like come and experience for yourself, that, that's the antithesis of fundamentalism. Um, so yeah, I, I do hear what you're saying. Um, 
And it has been challenging for me in the robes, definitely different, different aspects, because there have been ways that I've been overreactive to things that I thought were too strict or too arbitrary or, or too authoritative or, you know, and so it is, it is a prickly area for me, for sure. Uh, but in, but it's in its essence, I think if the teachings are being picked up hmm. the way that I feel like that, that sounds fundamentalist the way I feel like the Buddhist, <laughs> I, I am often around deep practitioners and I feel the opposite of mm -hmm. what I feel when I'm around people that tend to be righteous, too idealistic, fundamentalist. Yeah. Thank you, Aya. What you've articulated so far sounds like a fairly standard trajectory from someone who, who's had difficulty with religious institution moving into a more secular approach to Buddhism. What was the pivot point? What's the story that got you into robes and utilizing form, though you obviously hold it different than you did? That's a great question. I think the thing that was the, you know, catalyst for me, I'll have to say, Ajahn Nisabo, you know, I am someone who got involved in fundamentalist religion. So I have it, I very much have it in me. And mm -hmm. I think that that is, that still was, that part of me still is one of the parts that is why I got into the robes because it is quite extreme. And, um, but now that I'm in the robes, I feel like a lot of that fundamentalism is, is being uh, worn away and chipped away and, and dissolved. I think, honestly, spending time at a local Vihara forest monastery was pivotal in that. The two senior nuns there, Aya Ananda Bodhi and Aya Santachita, they're not fundamentalists at all. They're, they're very real. Uh, they're very, very real and um, they, gave me a lot of space and and they they they're they have really big hearts and big minds and uh yeah i think it was essential the time that i spent with them thank you yeah and um if you i know you often reference the core teachings and the suttas and i'm curious since your trajectory took you to these suttas and these teachings, what are one or two teachings which really have come back to you again and again, or which you've held or, or that have come up in your mind over and over from, from the Buddha or from a teacher you know, either way? That's a hard question, but I'm curious if anything pops into mind. Well, you know, since I've come to Canmore, I, I've ended up, giving me all these Dhamma reflections and almost every week I'm like, this is one of my favorite suttas. I always end up saying, suttas really important. Really, you know, yeah. There are just so many. Um, but a sutta that 
is really special to me is uh, in the middle length discourses, uh, the grade of the tamed, the um, 125, just that description of uh, the, the Buddha gives a beautiful metaphor of, of the gradual training and the, the path. Uh, he makes this beautiful metaphor of like training a wild elephant. And, and there's this key part where the Buddha is talking about the elephant tamer and the way that the elephant tamer speaks to the elephant. And the elephant obviously is our mind and the elephant tamer obviously is also our mind, you know, our, our, our practice, but it's all about it being gentle and lovely and pleasing and agreeable. So just having that inner voice, that's really your best friend. I mean, I think there's a part of the path that is just learning to become your own best friend. I came to talk about, you know, it's the greatest, it's the greatest love story. It's the greatest love. It's, it's the greatest love. And I can remember early on feeling that as I sat, sat down to meditate, like this is the most loving thing that I can do hmm. for my own mind. Would you say more to, would you speak more to that in a kind of cultural milieu and narrative where sitting alone can be looked at as a selfish act? And living in robes could be looked at as a selfish act as well, living sort yeah. of alone and isolated. Um, yeah, I think it, it takes a, I guess you'd have to have some buy-in, you know, that, that we have the potential to actually train our minds. Mm. And I think if you if you accept that premise, I think the Four Noble Truths, you know, I think that there's this premise on the path that, you know, no one can make you happy, but no one can make you miserable either. It, it's that, that happiness and suffering are, are arising inside mm -hmm. so I, I think if you start to open up to that premise and realize like the the most loving thing i can do is to is to purify this system like clean you know first of all you know half lives contain the toxic waste you know <laughs> and then and then hopefully even turn it into some kind of compost that grows something very very beautiful and then you look at beings that have done that and not necessarily on, you know, Buddhist, but just beings that have actually gotten serious about making, make growing beauty, inner beauty. Like, like, uh, I mean, look at what Nelson Mandela did in, and he spent all that time in prison. You know, before when you read the what's it called, the Long Road to Freedom, his his autobiography. You know, he he was a big believer in violence. 
before, you know, early on in, in his um, rebellion against the Parthi. And he was involved in setting off bombs and getting ammunition. And then he spent all that time in prison and became a real believer in, oh my God, the forgiveness that that man hmm. accomplished. You know, you look at, look at Thich Nhat Hanh, look at, I mean, the list goes on and on. I feel like you're speaking to something important here. Um, how has that sense of love changed for you over the years? Is it still there or how is the flavor different? What is, what is your love story been since you ordained? And where, where do you land now? way less idealistic <laughs> it's just way the, honeymoon, the honeymoon is over or not so much um you know what it's interesting the idealism i think got in the way of the honeymoon you know i think i think i i now have a meditation teacher beth upton and she gives a definition of metta as acceptance and and i think that that's very very powerful and so when you start to really accept your own life, yeah. all your mistakes, you know, all the harm that you've done, all the harm that's happened to you, when you start to really accept uh, your limitations and your potential, um, yeah, it's, it's very freeing. I feel much more relaxed, you know, less, less angst. Yeah. I have this movement towards softening and forgiveness and acceptance. I'm sure you are as aware as, as anyone of how common self recrimination and self-hatred are, um, what do you say to some practitioner who deeply wants to bring their lives in line with this path, who senses the beauty of the love story and yet finds that their day-to-day -day existence is bound by duties of family and work? You've been a mother, you've worked, um, and, and they don't feel like they can come into complete alignment. and that sense of friction is perhaps exacerbates that sense of self-recrimination. And, and what do you tell to someone in, in a situation like that of, of, of nons of not, how do they forgive themselves? How do they forgive their situation? How do they forgive their failures? That's a great question. I was at a retreat and someone asked Beth Upton about, you know, becoming a mother and their practice and, Beth, to me, it was just such a wise answer. She was like, no matter what, if you choose to become a mother, if you, if you embark on that, make sure that that is your practice, that you don't set up a competition between what that involves and formal meditation practice. There's a, there's a member of our board and, um, I don't want to, I won't give too many details, but you know, he has children and very important work that he does helping, 
helping helping a lot of underprivileged you know poor people and, but it's very demanding and he's very good at it so you know he ends up you know being given more and more and more responsibility and uh he's also you know at one point in his life he was thinking about being a monk and uh, so he he's the most extreme example i can think of someone that has like has the ability and has had the experience of deep meditation and yet he has a life that is very demanding at this point and there, there he feels a lot of that conflict and that tension and um right now he he's it, he's he's stopping fighting hmm. he's realizing these are the choices i've made this is how my life is now and so this is my practice his practice right now is developing lots and lots and lots of wholesome parami and he spends less time than he would like in formal meditation uh but he's experiencing more peace more nourishment mm -hmm. from the activities that he is involved in more connection with his wife i think at this point yeah i think it's very important that we we don't set up attention that doesn't actually need to be there hmm. there are times in our practice when you know if we have a, a a sick dying parent that's our practice at that time very much hmm. yeah thank you aya yeah would that be your main advice to say mothers and and fathers if do you have any like little practical buddhist parenting advice for those listening or relationship advice but uh just curious to sort of um you know it sounds like turning towards one's life as their practice obviously is, is yeah. as you put it beautifully and maybe that's the whole of it yeah and you know relationship this this is a, this is a this is a powerful vehicle hmm. you you end up going to places that you know if if your partner's willing to you know where you're really really uh i mean love 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 is the path and if you're tr truly trying to love someone fully with all of all of their all of the things that are irritating to you and uh all of the things all the ways that you're scared to be vulnerable like this is this is important practice yeah and with our children i really think it's it's not seeing them in competition with our practice hmm. but seeing them as our practice my daughter has two young children and she's not a meditator she's not a practitioner but she, she you know she was home with those kids through the pandemic and i've seen her grow like parami um yeah i've seen her grow in ways that you you and i've seen her have some insights into herself and into life and reality and what's important that you expect from someone that's had you know long retreat time mm. 
I, I, I'll just say, I mean, I, I can go as far as to say Ajahnisipa, when I started practicing, I was like, how do people meditate that aren't parents? <laughs> there are lessons that you've learned from being a parent that are invaluable on the cushion. You know, early days, I get boredom, a lot of boredom when I was meditating. And I think, oh, come on, come on. I used to be able to dig down for my two-year-old son and my three-year-old daughter. No one tells you how boring it is. <laughs> like pushing cars back and forth, and dressing paper dolls, like, you know, mind mind-numbing boredom but i would get into it because because it was important to, to be present with this being and so then i was able to draw on that of be present with my own mind i i feel like i have can relate to the terrible two mind and also the uppity 15 year old i have both in me thank you um one thing i i want to I, I would like to hear your advice for women who do have the opening to possibly look into going forth, what your thoughts would be for them. You know, that's a, that's like your most challenging question so far. Cause <clears throat> you know, I, <laughs> when, if you're, if you're male and you're thinking about going forth, it's like, Mm, should I go to Harvard? Should I go to Yale? No, I think I'll go to Princeton. You know, I mean, you have these pretty amazing choices. And then if you're female, it's like, will I go to Kwantlen Community College or should I just do, you know, it online? <laughs> it's like, we just don't have the, you know, and how could we? Because when you've got any institution any culture that's been marginalized and experienced erasure you know you can't just magic up you can't just magic up a, a lineage and a culture and elders so they're just they're just not there so honestly if 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 someone's young i think there's perhaps look at asia is one possibility. If someone's not so young and not not so healthy, um, you know, it's bit and bit by bit. It's going to get better. Mm. Uh, so I certainly want to encourage young women, uh, and yet it's the you. As Anagarika Sarah was becoming an Anagarika here, I was feeling really apologetic, like, I'm, I'm sorry, you're not stepping into a well-oiled machine. It's just not there. Um, so I think, I think the other thing, so I would say, you know, go and look at all of the potential places and perhaps try and steward at different places, speak with any ordained women that you can even email them and ask to have a zoom um and make sure that you've got a good meditation teacher mm. i think that's very very important and that that's not necessarily going to be 
the resonant see you none. Not not necessarily. Not at this point. Yeah. Thank you, Aya. I'm always been I've always been struck by your ability to speak to this imbalance in the genders in the teachings and in the Sangha. Uh, you know, the gendered language you find in the Pali Suttas, but also in the Sangha, the imbalance. Um, with great kindness and speaking to this dichotomy between love and the changes that that affects and um, some of the more, uh, you know, the other ways that one could hold all this. How, how have you worked with these tensions in yourself and how have you come to hold um, both for just anyone, say the gendered language in the suttas themselves, or in the wider institution, this uh, imbalance between the number of bhikkhunis and bhikkhus and the opportunities available? I, I used to be more upset about it, more bothered. I think part of it is because, honestly, I hadn't really experienced uh, much misogyny in my life as a woman. I mean, I lived in Canada and I, you know, did what I wanted to do and it had the careers I wanted to have. And, and then when I came to Buddhism is actually the first time I experienced, uh, yeah, uh, I, I had, you know, interactions that were like, oh my gosh, that, that didn't feel nice. <laughs> Yeah. So initially, I was pretty upset. Now I'm I'm not, because um, now I understand the the uh, much. It's not it's not specific to Buddhism. It's just it's just the dynamics when you have uh, someone that that has a lot more power and someone that has a lot less power. Mm. And and honestly, there are aspects of being the person that has less power that are easier. There are some aspects of it that are easier. One is that you're more connected to the truth of it because your life demands it. I mean, ask, uh, and I don't mean to say, I'm, I'm hesitant to make this analogy because I think the, the oppression that, or, or the, the lack of opportunities that Bukunis face is is very minuscule compared to the the pain and the suffering of the dynamics in terms of race in the United States. But I just will say, ask a uh, African American how often they think about race, and it'll be many times a day. Hmm. Ask a white person, and I don't hmm. know. They have the luxury. They don't ever have to think about it. it. It depends on their own heart and conscience. So, um, yeah, the thing is, the 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 group that has less power often they they end up holding the pain of the situation because the people with with more power often aren't. Uh, 
And how does that not lead to bitterness? Because, because it's, it's just a, a dynamic. It's, it's not, it's not personal. And you start to see the, the downside of the group that has more power. They're, they're disconnected from some things. And, and then you, you start to feel for that. And then for me specifically as a bhikkhuni, um, there are just so many monks that I deeply admire and, and resonate with that it, it's not like that. You know, Ajahn Brahm, Ajahn Mali, Bhante Sujato, Bhante Gunaratana, um, uh, Venerable Analio, uh, Ajahn Nisabo, Ajahn Kovalo, you know, yeah, um, Bhante Sudaso. And so, and that, that's just, then you really feel like, like when I'm with monks that have, that have openly, you know, and, and deliberately come forward to support full ordination for women, when you're with them, it's just so easy. It just, it's just like being with your brother or being with your uncle. It, it's just, it's, it's so easy. So that also is hugely, hugely supportive and healing and, and then just wise attention. So then you just, you just put your attention there. Hmm. Yeah. And it is a process, you know, and, and I think you do have to go through the, the I had to, I, I'm seeing Anna Garica Sarah have to, hmm. yeah. Thank you, Aya. Definitely come out the other side, for sure. Thank you. Yeah. And it's just just for a time, you know, it's it's all going to change. There's just no question. Yeah. It has been beautiful to see the various uh, kind of dwellings of bhikkhunis in the Northwest uh, just increase in this last year. And that's been heartening in so many ways. We have some questions from the audience as well. Uh, do you mind giving them a whirl, Aya? Yeah, sure. All right. If you don't mind, this is a hard oh. one. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Uh, if okay. you don't mind, Aya, did you leave your husband to take robes? No, no. He left me. Um, he left me about uh, maybe uh, ten years before. Yeah, yeah. We were. Yeah, we were, yeah. So, no, I was a single parent. Yeah, so that was very clean and easy. Question. I've heard often about how difficult it is for women who aspire to be monastics. How can we help as lay people to improve the situation and make it easier for women to take up robes? Well, that is the million-dollar question. I'm so happy someone asked that question. <clears throat> Because actually, the lay people have so much power. I think the more that the lay people are are bringing it up to monks that aren't actively supporting bhikkhuni ordination, the better. Hmm. Ask them about it, and and uh, uh, 
Yeah, and and perhaps you know, perhaps uh, challenge them even. This one's a slightly different flavor, Aya. A question for both venerables. Is this existence real to you or not? <clears throat> I'm going to let you take the first whack at this one, Aya. <laughs> Ajahn Brahm to me has the best. Uh, he, he says, um, I mean, obviously, I am not of the camp that thinks all of this is just an illusion. Uh, I mean... Uh, there's something here, but Arjun Brahm talks about um, that what is here is not the self that you take it to be. Hmm. Yeah. I think that's I, I, what resonates with me as well as Long Prapanya Vado said, that which exists is not real and that which is real does not exist. Um, because everything in existence we only perceive because there's change and nibbana you know the the deathless is is how could we perceive it normally because it's changeless um i always found that very beautiful um someone asked why the teddy bear was sitting next to the buddha oh that's a good that's probably a good question um, <laughs> I actually moved the Buddha. This is actually the teddy bear's seat in the shrine room. And I, I moved the Buddha here. Um, so I had a Buddha behind me, but <laughs> I, I get it. That could be uncomfortable for someone. So I, I'm happy to have a teddy bear sit somewhere else. We'll while, have while the, the Buddha. <laughs> bear Cooney's ears will still stick up. That's, yeah. that's good. <laughs> I, um, while we're waiting for more, or we have a bit longer, but um, I'm curious, uh, gosh, there's a few questions I would love to ask. One is um, how, you know, first, if you've kind of had a dry materialist worldview challenged in your life in robes, if you've had kind of experiences which made you question it, um, or if that one's a bit uncomfortable, I, I'm curious, how you speak about the more esoteric elements of the teaching, such as rebirth or other realms. Uh, and, and do you see, how do you approach those teachings which are a bit harder to navigate in the modern uh, contemporary culture? Hmm. They seem so obvious to me. Ah. <laughs> uh. What do you mean? Well, I mean, everything is, you know, I mean, you look at a oak tree and then the, and then the seed drops and like, like everything is, everything is cycling, everything, the whole, uh, yeah. And, um, I, I think that this is something that's actually an important role for monastics. Um, and I think that this is another, you know, one of the other catalysts for me becoming a monastic on, honestly was the whole situation with Donna. Hmm. And, um, you know, early on I was at retreats and I was being explained to me that 
the teachings were priceless and therefore they were being offered free of freely but i paid a registration fee to come to this thing and then yeah it just seemed quite mixed up so i think once you take when things are just it's just donna like freely given then there's uh more freedom to just read the suttas the way that they are and certainly you can say to people like this is an invitation ajahn tanisaro talks about you know working hypothesis this is very useful you know mm-hmm. um and right now you know i i have not seen past lives i am taking this on but this is how faith works right like like you ask me which sutta really speaks to me the great of the tamed mm. in that metaphor the the buddha talks about the elephant you know he's spoken to gently by the elephant tamer and then the elephant tamer gives the elephant fodder feeds him and the elephant takes the fodder and then the elephant tamer knows okay now now, this is going to work you know i'm going to be able to tame this elephant he'll become a king's elephant he'll live this is how faith works hmm. you you take the teachings on board as a working hypothesis and then you start to experience the the fruit ripening from from the practice and so then you know okay well the buddha was right about that and then you start to access deeper experiences in meditation okay well the buddha's right about that and it just goes on down the list and so the ones that are more that take deeper and deeper meditation and that maybe many of us have not yet had first-hand experience of uh we're still using it as a working hypothesis thank you for that uh aligning faith with that moment in that sutta. I had never put those two. I I really like that. We have a little bit longer, Aya. So another question. What's a lesson you've learned about humans or yourself by moving to Canmore and building a community? That's a great question. (laughs) Um, Hmm. I just, I think lessons have been reinforced that, no, it's been wonderful. It's been wonderful. This is like, it's almost a year and it's it definitely my first time, but I'm a really like, yeah, I was a parent, you know, I have two children, I have two grandchildren. So I have created community before and just kindness is essential and safety the the more that people are feeling accepted i think just for who they are and for things to be safe uh that that's what i've learned like that this, this is essential and i think sometimes when the hierarchy is emphasized too in my opinion too much um it it, it can it can it can it can create results, but they're not necessarily based on safety. Some of them are based on 
fear and, and pleasing. And so, yeah, when we began our community, the first meeting we had, we all came with three, our top three core values, our top three core values in particular in lead, living in a Buddhist intentional community. And uh, there was such overlap and kindness mm. there for us, many of us, and, and things being out in the open. Things, things being out in the open, things being named. Um, and then you can work with them. Yeah, there, there's there's nothing, I don't think, that can't get worked through if people are willing to be, to be honest and to take responsibility for, for their own heart and mind. I think that's a great place to end. We have more questions, but we're at 645. So people are just going to have to join us on Zoom. And Aya and Bear Cooney will be joining us on Zoom in, in a second. And uh, for the record, someone did think Bear Cooney next to the Buddha was sweet. So you have a fan there. Aya, thank you so much for, for joining us, for your friendship, for your example, for your wisdom. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Gosh. OK. And um, I'll post the Zoom link into the chat for those who feel like joining us on Zoom now from 6.45 to 7.30. For, uh, we'll continue the conversation there. If you can't see the chat for whatever reason, just navigate to clearmountainmonastery.org. And halfway down the page, there's a link to Wednesday evenings, and the Zoom link is there. So we'll plan to see, uh, hopefully, many of you there. And Aya, please join us again soon in person, if you would. OK. Great. Great.